0: This is a crusade! This is a holy war against the deep state! Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution! I'm going to fight for Christians, I'm going to fight for white people. They have
1: the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening.
0: And why shouldn't I root for Russia, which I am.
2: I want to see these people
0: go through misery because of their grooming against our children after the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong.
3: Welcome to a premium episode of the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke.
2: And I'm Jay McKenzie.
3: Alexander Reed Ross is an American author and geographer. His work includes articles and research on resource management, disinformation in the far right, and transnational political networks. He has been featured in The Washington Post, The Daily Beast, Haaretz, and many more. His 2017 book, Against the Fascist Creep on the Tactics of the International Far-Right Movement, is a must-read for understanding the rise of these groups. We're lucky to have him with us today. Dr. Reed Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. We really appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely, Griffith.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
3: So the way this came about was kind of spontaneous. We were putting our Charlie Kirk permanent record episode together. That's episode 98. And when we got to the section on the professor watch list, we saw that your name was on it. We wanted to see if you'd commented anywhere on it, and we didn't see anything. So we decided to reach out to you and see if you wanted to talk to us about it. So thank you for helping us out with that. And we appreciate you taking the time to answer a whole bunch of other questions we had as well. Thank you so much. You've been doing really vital and fascinating work for years, and it's great to have a chance to talk to you about it. Yeah, no problem. Can you talk a little bit about your background for the members of our audience who might not be familiar with your work?
1: How far back do you want to go? I have a pretty. I mean, I don't, I, I'm 40 years old. You're only 40. Nice. <laughs> You've done a <laughs> yeah, lot, no, no. man. I I, uh, I went through. I feel so old. Nice. I feel. I feel so <laughs> old, man.
3: I'm 48. First
1: time I've gotten in. Nice. Yeah, I'm,
3: I'm 48. <laughs> You've accomplished a ton by this point, my friend. I'm very impressed. So yes. <laughs>
1: So my background is mostly in activist circles after graduating college, a little bit in college too, just solidarity and global justice movements and the environmental movement, really. And I started uh, working at Portland State University as an adjunct in 2017, then got my PhD in 2020, Around water issues and collaborative governance, so my, my background is really like ecology, human water systems and sort of collaborative structures of water and resource management. But like as I'm doing my like climate and, and environmental justice activism in like 2014, I start to notice that there are these activists who are like, "Why do you have a totem coffee?" <laughs> <laughs> And I had to do all that research into like, what are these symbols? What do they mean? Like, there was a death in June show, which is like a ah, yes. And I was just finding out about this. And I went to protest and I saw a couple of people that I knew from environmental activism walk over and say hi, and then walk to the end of the line. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, like, this is bad, bad. Like, we're actually... It's not even a question of... Is it a question of infiltration? Or is it a question of like... This whole scene is like questionable.
3: Yeah, that's a tell. You're a fan of Death in June. That's a that's a big fat tell for where your politics are
1: so i just started to research fascism very extensively and uh, came out with a book in 2017 about how kind of fascism emerges in left wing spaces or ostensibly left wing spaces and i've been getting harassed ever since you know i had some <laughs> fascists try to break up my book talk in dc proud boys threatened in that same year in brooklyn i mean i received a lot of hate people tried to get me fired i got on this professor watch list andy knows led campaigns to try and get me fired so uh and i mean they've done things like mistaken identity like i was some somebody who like yelled it in a rock war veteran widow or something like that or like
3: <laughs> of course i don't know
1: there have been various different weird campaigns to to try and destroy my my
3: career right and they don't apologize or they don't back off or issue retractions they're just on to the next one whenever there's you know whenever they do something and it doesn't work they're just forget it whatever just move on
1: strangely i haven't found many news sites particularly interested in uh such efforts to cancel the left wing
3: really <laughs> that's a that's an absolute shock I'm, I'm here to tell you i'm very shocked they're not
1: falling all over themselves trying to publicize the plight of harassed left-wingers.
3: Man, seriously, it's it's wild because like they can't seem to get enough of it when one of the, shall we say, right-wingers or people who... Classical liberals. Classical please. liberals. Yes, yes. They get harassed. It's front-page news, but yeah... You probably had it coming Mm. or something. You're from Portland, right? So that, of course, Mm. that explains everything.
1: Yeah, they tend to take like one thing somebody said out of context or just sort of do a blanket kind of like this person has taught critical race theory or something of that nature, you know. So it's at best very misleading. Right. But the whole thing, yeah, the whole thing is very, very biased and doesn't really reflect the actual scholarship that's taking place.
2: I, I tried to look, like, at the entire list, and I just got tired of loading more and more names on there, and it just goes on and on and on.
3: It's content for those guys. I mean, this is this is Charlie Kirk, who runs a light-on scholarship, long-on convincing old boomers to give him money and When he's looking to fire up that base, it's Antifa, it's critical race theory, it's trans rights, it's, you know, just anything that gets those people to write checks from what we can tell.
1: Yeah, and he doesn't seem to be concerned at all about the bomb threats being called into, you know, middle schools or high schools. Exactly. Um, that kind of thing, you know, it's uh, they're they're supposed to be an education, right? A youth group for the GOP, kind of uh, focused on targeting education. That's really all they do is they target education, and they don't really represent education at all.
3: Right, but they manage to traumatize the kids again and again and again in many ways. So it becomes this kind of vicious cycle of how do we get the attention that we need to keep this thing going they at last count had something like 55 million dollars in donations in the last few years so
1: right from very big very big organizations uh-huh. right? these aren't like grassroots you know concerned citizens desperately uh-huh. you know opening their pocketbooks to to fund charlie kirk right he's no. uh he's getting it from the top and i think we can kind of see what's going on with the reawaken america tour and the way that tpusa has basically turned into a vehicle for the new apostolic reformation
3: right right and it becomes like a what are you going to do to keep the gravy train rolling when your political candidate has lost and you've proven that you're not very good at election prognostications let's call it in arizona and everybody you put your time and effort into seems to have lost what are you going to do to keep that keep that going, keep the older boomers writing the checks to your organization? Well, you're going to go find God. And that's what Charlie seems to have done. Well, yeah. And, and I think
1: the new college in Florida is really kind of the bellwether of where they're going uh, mm-hmm. with all of this because they've really given up on sort of the edgy provocations in universities that are kind of targeting the idle administration and the left-wing protesters trying to create a crisis within the sort of liberal institution. You know, they've kind of given up on that, and now they're just working towards consolidating power and just absolutely dismantling everything they can about higher education.
3: Yeah, and it's a real blueprint for what they're probably like you said going to do if, you know, God forbid we get a second Trump administration in a year. This is Secretary of Education Chris Rufo, just watch. That's where they're going to yeah.
1: go. Oh, for sure, for sure. And even if if that doesn't happen, I think we're also seeing what's happening in red states that they are shutting down and I think a lot of this has to do with the independent voters, right? They saw in 2020 that maybe they're losing those guys if they actually believe that they lost the election they have to wonder about why and the answer Mm -hmm. is independent voters and going with abortion or or going with destroying roe v wade in a sense really kind of sealed the deal perhaps on the independent voters and i think at this point they feel like that Check has been cashed. And right, <laughs> they're, definitely. they're not going to be vying for those voters anymore. They're just going to do as much as they can where they can. Right. And see if they can get away with it.
3: Did you know a lot about Turning Point USA when they put you on that list?
1: A fair amount. I mean, I had to research them because of the kind of rupture with the groipers Right. Right. I mean, it's a very complicated subject because you want to kind of create a neat and tidy categorization, right, of the alt-right and the alt-light at that time. But there were still people like Paul Joseph Watson who were excoriating Richard Spencer, but you know, also being a full-fledged Nazi rapist, according to recent allegations. So, mm-hmm. so that cut and dried line is is very complex. And that's kind of what I try to explore in my book.
3: Right. And You mentioned that that line gets pretty complex. You look at a guy like, you know, for instance, a gentleman I know you've run across before named Jack Posobiec, who uh, spent 2016 kissing up to Richard Spencer from the looks of things, Mm -hmm. and then 2017 basically kind of disavowing all of that. And Mm -hmm. my question is, do you think he took your book title personally, since people have been referring to him (laughs) as a fascist creep for a number of years?
1: (laughs) I mean... I'm not sure. He is the guy who uh, who released a free copy online. Somehow he got access to the galleys ah. of the book, the basically the PDF that the editor uses to send to the press. Right. Uh, or the publisher, I mean. And somehow he got his hands on that and, uh, and just put it out online. And he did this d- right after my book talk was invaded by these uh, MAGA hat-wearing Nazis. Right. One of them killed himself because of all of these weapons charges and just pure disillusionment. It was really a tragic tale. It was, um, it was. Just sitting in the back of the book, talking, listening.
2: Oh, I I did not realize the Clark brothers uh-huh. were there. There was one, yeah. Okay, I didn't realize they were there to take offense at your book, which is an, it's an interesting uh, turn. I did want to ask you, though, about, because you mentioned Nick Fuentes and the the on again, off again, fights with Charlie Kirk. Are you surprised at how far right Charlie and TPUSA have moved? Do you think it was just inevitable or is it audience capture? Is it radicalization? What's your take on that?
1: They've always been on the sort of Christian right. um, But, you know, they were getting yelled at by the America Firsters uh, with Nick Fuentes, partly because they weren't Christian nationalist enough, right? And there was an effort uh, back in 2021-ish for some people to kind of move the new apostolic reformation movement toward more racially integrated you know, congregations, try to open things up a little bit. Which the Gruipers were really struggling hard to like oppose. So now we see them really going kind of hard on this like pre-millennialist, reawakened type of idea. People like Sean Foyt saying that real Jesus is gonna come to Israel and Mm. there's gonna and and the Christians will convert all the Jews, you know, and stuff like that. The Christians are the real tribe of Israel. It's this weird, like parallel to Christian identity, really.
3: Yeah, I was going to say walking that line of Christian identity and...
1: Mm -hmm. It's a normalization, yeah. Wow. And and TPUSA is completely here for it. Right. So I think what's happened is like a remarkable success of the NAR has perhaps made them, and I'm not an expert in the NAR, but I've been researching them more recently, but it's perhaps made them the de facto line of the Christian right. And that has, like you're saying, Jay, made it kind of inevitable for TPUSA to drift in that direction. And when I not saying that the NAR is specifically a white nationalist entity, right? It's much more complicated than that, but they are Christian nationalists and basically theocrats. So we're seeing, again, with the kind of emptying out of this independent constituency, a firmer stance of the mainstream right toward opposition to all pretense of even classical liberalism.
3: Right, definitely. Holy changes of tactics. So... You said, and you've mentioned that you've been doing activism for a long time. You've been in the trenches for years. This isn't exactly your first rodeo when these people show up and start doing what they do. Their new project is school boards. They've been making a site somewhat similar to the professor watch list for school boards. And do you think this would be different if if you were a school board member from some small town in Oregon? And all of a sudden Charlie Kirk's got you on a list.
1: Right. No, I'm not at all like Mr. Super Brave or anything like that. Like I'm terrified of these people. You know, I don't I don't want to present myself as somebody who's just like fearless at all, you know, and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I'm I'm terrified, especially because, like what you're saying, the targeting of the school boards is an explicit tactic. It can no longer be considered stochastic. In terrorist content, and what we are seeing is terrorism. It's bomb threats. Right. It's targeted, and a, and there's a very explicit, very specific chain, a communications, an informal communications chain, that goes from you know local quote unquote moms, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Moms for Liberty
1: to social media influencers like libs of TikTok, spread out throughout the country, at which point people who aren't afraid to pick up the phone. And calling a bomb threat will descend on these, you know, towns and counties uh, where teachers are really, really, really vulnerable. Right. right? I mean, it's a lot easier if you live in a big city to kind of just sort of hang back and not be uh, necessarily concerned about your security all the time but if you're in a smaller community which a lot of these people are who are getting targeted or you're on the school board for example it's much more frightening and you don't want a bomb threat called into the school what's that going to do to the kids you know what i mean like so you have to make this awful moral calculus of is being openly kind to trans people going to further traumatize everybody in the school. Right. Again, it's not stochastic. There's nothing random or aleatory about this. It is an iron chain connecting exactly the people who are responsible for this.
2: Right. I think you're right. It is noteworthy to me the fact that you you mentioned just the average person, small town, they're not expecting any sort of backlash. They're not expecting to go viral or appear on social media. And I've seen it before where Charlie Kirk on his show with hundreds of thousands, at least, if not millions of listeners, picks out a random video or an image of a pride flag at an elementary school. And it, it just seems like something that someone's mom or a member of the PTA may have put on their social media account. And if you're just the unlucky one, well, that means you're going to have a very bad day, a very bad week, and who knows how it's going to affect you, especially when you're not ready for it. And it just does seem like a message that we on the right are not okay with this and any one of you could become the next target. So be careful. Yeah.
1: Right. There's a a sense, perhaps, that the laws of a democratic society do not apply to Republicans, right? And so in order to basically conform the country to the values and ideals that they hold, they have to um, dismantle the rule of law itself (laughs) and, (laughs) and operate, as I said, in an informal capacity, which can be formalized through this so-called illiberal democracy program that they're gleaning from Hungary. Ironically, of course, because Hungary is absolutely the opposite of a Christian country, less than half of Hungarians and Russians actually are practicing Christians. and You see this a lot in the former Soviet states and satellites. And so their Christianity seems to be a useful kind of popular Philip, To install the kind of elitist authoritarianism that they hope will just simply maintain their own power structure.
3: So let's talk about your book signing and some of the guys that later went on to end up being charged with weapons violations, crashing that. Can you tell us a little bit about that incident and what happened?
1: That's not even the craziest thing that happened. The kill list was probably the craziest thing, which happened a few months after that. But the weapons guys, they didn't have any weapons as far as I knew at that time. But it was a—it it seemed to be a, quite a co- coordinated effort, right? There are two kids in particular who were quite close to Jack Posobiec. And then there was another guy there who I think had done security for Richard Spencer at one time. Right. And they came together, I saw them walking in with their maga hats and I was like, "Oh god, oh god, oh god." <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was going to I was thinking maybe I rush over to the door and just like lock it. Um, but I'm not really familiar with the space. It was actually a vegan Rastafarian uh-huh. bookstore, mm-hmm. pacifist bookstore. So I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> how do I respect this space and Right you know, try to deal with this, it was only like a split second. So they come in through the door. It's like a glass front too. So I'm like, oh, geez. And there's a guy in a car outside with a camera with like an iPhone, just filming the the whole thing. So the people who are there, there aren't that many people, because I'm not a very popular guy, just sort of like crowd around them immediately. But there are no fights, no fights broke out. There was immediately like a call throughout DC for anti-fascists to to descend on the space. And in the meantime, I was just up there and I just sort of said, you know, like uh, I kind of just remained calm, tried to and just once things started dying down, like the manager or whatever, I think it's a collective space. So whatever, a representative from the bookstore came over and was like, and talked to the biggest guy there. And he's like, you know you guys can stay as long as you don't interrupt or do anything violent and they were like okay you know cuz their whole point was they thought that we were going to react violently against them right so that's why they had somebody filming they were hoping for bodies being thrown out of the windows and like a big right. catastrophe right. everybody can say look at these violent characters but instead they just found their way to the very back of the uh the establishment and sat there and just sort of frowned and looked extremely <laughs> sad. And then, you know, probably about 60 people showed up to the small bookstore for the remainder of the talk, followed them out. They tried to get in a cab, but the, uh, somebody explained to the cabbie like, you know, who these guys were, and he refused to drive them. So they just kept going, they kept walking. And yeah, there was that guy who was filming, uh, somebody took a picture of him, I want to say somebody, somebody thought he looked a little like Benny Johnson, but I don't know who it actually was. And he left. Um, and that was that. Was that? And then uh, we went, a few of us went to get a drink afterwards, and found that Jack Posobiec had published a free version of my book. So... I don't know if they were trying to do me a solid by like creating this big publicity event and then, <laughs> you know, breaking out my book.
3: Maybe Jack was trying to promote his own book that he wrote shortly thereafter that I don't think anyone actually read. He was trying He's to push there for a minute.
1: He fascist creep. <laughs> yeah. It's me. Um,
3: hey. Tag yourself. I'm fascist creep. I think that was probably where we were at with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, um I don't know. I don't know what they were trying to do. Whatever they tried to do, it really it really kind of backfired and failed because we're not like people who are instinctively prone to violence, which is people who are trying to have a nice book talk.
3: (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, you know, after a while, these people believe their own hype and they've been on this oh, it's, you know, Antifa, these violent people, they're all about trashing things and breaking things and they can't handle dissenting opinions. I mean, at least a couple of those people probably did think they were going to get jumped when they walked in there just because they've huffed too much of their own their own supply on this one. Now, you mentioned the list afterwards. You said something about the the kill list. you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Oh, yes. That came after a, a weird article in the Quillette, which is one of the kind of classical liberal pretentious, <laughs> you know, sites that's out there and probably the major one. The article purported to expose journalistic friendliness with Antifa, right? Without, of course, being able to explain what Antifa or anti-fascist activists are. So they just found a number of accounts and then tracked how many accounts different journalists were following. And so if a journalist was following like seven or more anti-fascist Twitter accounts, then they were considered to be very friendly with Antifa, Ah. which there's so many things wrong with it, right? (laughs) Like one of which is that, as as one person stated, that they also followed people like Richard Spencer on Twitter. And then another person noted that uh, the publisher of, I think publisher Claire Lehman actually follows like... 10 or so alt-right accounts <laughs> <laughs> you know so by the same time et cetera, yeah. et cetera. so it's a very guilt by association type of idea but anyway they, they kind of like busted out this list and then it appears that the list had been adapted into a video called sunset the media with the kind of uh fash wave aesthetic right taking photos of myself and about six or so other anti-fascists and putting them on basically a kill list you know sunset the media with Mm -hmm. images of brutal violence specifically nazi brutal violence and a quote from james mason ah that fellow yeah political terror is literally what he called for killing um interracial couples and that sort of thing, so yeah that was kind of jarring right
2: yeah and that that did seem to bring together both the alt right and the alt light now it difficult to say who found the list and how it ended up with adam waffen and and we don't want to connect too many dots that we don't know, but I know you talking about Charlie Kirk, talking about Nick Fuentes, there are two distinct groups between the alt-right and, and the alt-light, but it does seem like a lot of it is for show, or at least it's, it's creating separation that may or may not be there. Because when you you see something that goes out from Colette of, of a list of, of bad Antifa journalists and the alt-light blows that up but then the alt-right takes it to a further extreme. It's something that that we keep coming up against. And I feel like less and less separation actually exists anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Well,
1: and, or the separation in the first place, you know, as Griffiths was kind of pointing out with Posobiec's relationship with Richard Spencer uh, before the Trump election um, was uh, rather superficial And I think, again, using the Paul Joseph Watson example, you can kind of have this uh, idea of this guy who was, in some ways, privately a a Nazi, according to accounts, but at the same time, a rival of Richard Spencer. And so lumped in with the so called alt right, right? So a lot of it has to do with what they're willing to publicly propose based in a sense, on their own strategies and tactics. And then a lot of it also has to do with their own brand right? as personalities. Um, because in some cases, you might see this personality warring with another personality. One of them is slightly better at hiding his bigotry. And so he gets grouped with an ideological sort of area that doesn't necessarily differ very much with the alt-right. Um, Right. So this is also a process perhaps of mainstreaming uh, in ideology that otherwise is connected to individuals who are clearly, you know, experienced in hate and violence.
3: Right. One of the things that I keep coming back to is you've got a guy who is commonly thought of as being, if there is that distinction, alt-light, like Milo Yiannopoulos, who is pushing and um, what he called an America first reading list a couple of years ago. And it's stuff like Evola and it's stuff like the Turner diaries and it's stuff like Kaczynski and it's stuff like, you know, the camp of the saints and you find yourself wondering like, so you're supposedly the not quite so bad version of all of this, but you look at the literature that you're explaining to these people to read. And this isn't really a whole lot different than what anybody else on that side of things, would have told you to go read if they wanted to indoctrinate you into more of an alt-right mindset. So yeah, I see what you're saying about they're just that line is blurry at best most of the time between these people.
1: Sure, and then you get um, uh, Milo joining forces, like you said, with America First, but uh, having been considered particularly amid the Berkeley uh, protests um, back in whatever 2017 or right, something. Right. Right. Like yeah. That. Um, he was considered this sort of alt-light personality who's always just trolling people, right? right? So a lot of times you see people just kind of putting forward their true colors or in a way distorting the their true colors. Milo becoming a, a born-again Christian was always sort of uh, dubious. Oh, yes. So, you know, a lot of these people, I mean, fascism really thrives on dubious personalities who promote themselves
0: I went on, that was last night, I was on the first segment of the number one news show in America uh, talking about the failure of the Democratic Party and the misinformation being peddled by them, and um, I woke up this morning, uh, 7 a.m., I opened up my, 7.19 a.m., I get a media inquiry. Hi, how are you? My name is blah, blah, and I'm working on an article for the Daily Beast, Mm. the Daily Beast, that Democratic rag. Uh, I was wondering if you would answer a couple of questions about recent statements you made. Do you stand by your statements that the WHO was cautioning against lockdowns and that COVID nineteen restrictions were a conspiracy or a tyranny? Also, do you stand by your decision to invite Magnus Pranvita on your show? That was that Boogaloo boy. So you just know, say uh they say do you that do you stand by your statements that that COVID-19 restrictions were a conspiracy or a tyranny. Now, they didn't put conspiracy in quotes because I, I never fucking said that. But tyranny, so here's what I said. So you see what they're doing, exactly what you said they were going to do, Max. That's what they're doing. So I'm coming on telling a little bit of truth about the military-industrial complex and the failures of the Democratic Party. And the next morning, they got an assigned uh, hit piece on me at the Daily Beast, well, which is a well-known Democratic rag. Go ahead. I don't know if that piece is signed. That's by a really uh, uh, sort of a freelancer named Alexander why, Reed wait, Ross. Why are you doing? I fucking blacked out his name, dummy. Why are you fucking saying uh, his bottom, name? You can see the too. Just his first no. name. Well, because I because he sends me the same messages all the time and is trying to. I don't want to prop. Um, I don't want to mention his name on my show to prop him up. Do you understand that? Do you understand this is a big platform and if I mention his fuck, so more people are going to watch this video about this than are going to read his fucking article like 10 times more people. So that's why I don't want to mention his name, but Uh, you already did. I I don't even, you (laughs) motherfucker. Go ahead. (laughs) So
3: one of the more fascinating things that you've done in your writing career is an article about the multipolar spin, that Mm -hmm. seemed to have just absolutely pissed off all the right people when it came out. I mean, (laughs) you rarely see quite a response like that. And it seemed like everybody got super mad about it, partially because you kind of hit the nail on the head with a lot of what you said in there. The idea that there is a kind of backlink between the various propaganda arms of this media company over here and other people who would be ostensibly thought of as being kind of more of a leftist side of things. Can you talk a little bit about how you figured this out, what the thought process was that went into putting this article together?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. The process. So, you know, I have a few journalist friends and I was uh, in a Facebook message thing with a couple of them because we were working on an article together. And um, one of them just sent a link to this article by a guy named charles Bausman huh. and uh the article was um from a site that he ran called i'm not sure even if he still runs it i think he does called russia insider and it was basically about what do he say uh breaking the jew taboo or something like that and he talks yep. about "Quote unquote," naming the Jew and um, and basically saying, you know, the the elites. When everybody's talking about the elites and the globalists, they're really talking about Jews, right, right? Right. And the article, you know, it didn't create a very big stir because it's a pretty remote website in a sense. But Russia Insider, I had known because you know, as a sort of activist and, you know, aspiring journalists in the mid-2010s, I was pretty familiar with the alternative media ecosystem. And just like when I saw my friend go into the (laughs) Death in June concert, or I should say fellow activist, (laughs) this was like a real kind of wake-up call for me, you know? And so I investigated a little bit more. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is a site I've seen other activists sharing, you know, like, right. what the hell? Um, and uh, and the more I dug, the deeper, you know, the system seemed, but also the, the more superficial. So I looked into Russia Insider, and it was connected to this group called the American Committee for East-West Accord. And this was a very serious seeming organization with big kind of backers in the beltway, people like Jack Matlock and former Ambassador Vanden Heuvel, and also Stephen F. Cohen, who is a who's an editor at The Nation. Right. So it's like how are these left-wing progressives and these kind of really well-respected and prestigious political figures in in the United States connected to this like outlandish anti-semitic pro-kremlin organization and i was like while well, there is this really fascinating kind of agent within this acew organization which had been kind of like a revived cold war pro-détente kind of organization and his name was Gilbert Doctorow. And it seemed like he was functioning as a kind of a link between the anti-war movement in the United States and the anti-war you know, movement in Europe. And the more I kind of looked into what it all meant, the more I realized that the anti-war movement is actually a very complicated thing. Right. And that you know you can go all the way back to the original America first and see all of these you know, ultra-nationalists and fascists rallying behind this anti-war message, along with, you know, noted and respectable historians like Charles Beard and other kind of uh, pacifist figures. And so I just kept on digging at, like, what is going on here? And I found that a lot of the figures within this kind of alternative media ecosystem are tied together through, like, Russian state media, Sputnik. They're actually entities within Russia, like the American University of Moscow, which is barely a front, that kind of provide a little bit of a forum for them. And then there are these entities in the United States, like this group called Kissors, which were kind of paralleling the groups in Russia by hosting forums, business forums, and political forums in the United States that was bringing all of these people together and kind of becoming a staging point for discussions on how this um, movement is really going, and so I just kind of started to understand all of this together in the context of the research I had been doing by people like Shekhovstov and Marlene Laruel about how the European New Right developed as a sort of fascist entity that sort of couches its terms in liberal democracy and all that stuff, and uh, and it just led me to this understanding of how pro-Kremlin disinformation is spreading, right. not just through the far right, but also through the
3: left. And that was something that it seemed like you weren't supposed to notice. That was where it seemed like the people like Aaron Maté got just super upset that it came out publicly that sites like zone were helping to push the same sort of propaganda line. It was really something to see the response to that. They're still mad to this day, it seems.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing. But here's the thing. I mean, these were really well-respected people on the left mm-hmm. in 2018. I myself had serious reservations about the stuff that I was finding out. I mean, if we go back all the way, when I was in college in 2003 or something like that, I took a class with Vijay Prashad, who was one of the earliest you know, correspondence in Grey Zone. I mean, I corresponded with him after graduating for for years. You know, I looked up to him. I was, uh, he had convinced me, especially about like this, uh, the evils of the multinational corporations and very anti-imperialist logic and stuff like that. And I had cited Max Blumenthal's earliest book about dominionism in my own book. And so I found myself going through a massive process of self-exploration during this whole thing. And the fact that it erupted like it did with so many people turning against me really, really changed My world and my, and I still am sorting through it today. I'm not trying to have a therapy session right now, but like (laughs) it was hugely damaging for my entire worldview.
2: Right. I remember it at the time and how they wanted to reframe it not around Kremlin propaganda talking points, but that you were smearing leftists and dissidents as Nazis, which is not what you were doing. No. But it was a convenient way for them to veer the conversation in a dishonest direction that could be used against you. And I I did think that was very telling.
1: Right, and so the SPLC ended up backing down and pulling my articles, releasing an apology statement saying that they had apologized if anyone felt like the article had unfairly smeared them as fascists or white nationalists, et cetera. And what I was saying was that actually this is more complicated. You have left-wing groups and right-wing groups basically creating these networks in alliance together in opposition to basically United States foreign policy in favor of Russian national interest. And uh, what they probably think is American national interest, but so does Donald Trump. Right. Right. So, um, and I was saying that this is bad and this is going to land us all on the wrong side of history. So it was it was very much like an internal critique from the left, right. uh, backed by really like a, a pretty complex uh, and extensive amount of documentation. And everything, every serious, every point that I made in there has been backed up. By further uh, investigations. Like SPLC is still putting out articles on Charles
3: Bausman, mm-hmm.
1: ended up going to January 6th and is now in Russia.
3: He's in Russia in a hurry, too. He left on the first thing smoking after that. Just oh, a yeah, million yeah. dollars worth of property just sitting there in Lancaster, not doing anything with okay. it. Wow. Looks- yeah, yeah,
1: and is also tied into the National Justice Party
3: and all that uh-huh. kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: and yeah, I mean the FBI has been investigating Kissors and every single member of its directorship, sled back to Russia. <laughs> There's like groups like Black Hammer have been exposed for basically taking money in order to become a proxy for the Russian foreign intelligence. Right. There's a just a huge amount of documentation that's been released since that proves what I was saying. The thing that some people took umbrage to was, I said that Tim Pool was a member of the alt-right. So that was a big thing that people were really <laughs> upset about. Which, it depends on how you define the alt-right. and At the time, that is defensible especially because he had gone to do this thing about no-go zones for Paul Joseph Watson, who I knew was a fascist. So I was like, you are participating in this fascist campaign and you're trying to whitewash it. And that puts you on their side, you know. But, you know, of course, I didn't get to make any of those points because the SPLC, you know, backed down. And here we are. Yeah.
2: Well, and I did want to mention, I, I think... Like you said, there is an abundance of just documented evidence. But also, if you look at a lot of those figures that you wrote about, such as someone like Glenn Greenwald, they have a lot of them have moved further right, just explicitly, openly to the right with their talking points. But even those who are purported leftists or were and still claim to be, you look at their talking points after Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine And you compare that to what the right is saying and it is often identical and they are often amplifying each other. So the pretense is now gone. Mm -hmm. I don't know every point that you made in that article, but I would say quite a bit of it has been corroborated just by watching all of this unfold.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, Ukraine was really, I think, the thing at the end of the day that um, that sort of closed it all down. right? Uh, They had an open shop pretending, you know, (laughs) that they weren't pro-Kremlin by any means necessary. And they weren't just sort of like the lapdog for Putin. And that that Russia didn't pose a national security threat to anybody in the West. It was just a rational, popular state leader operating in the national interest in the area where they're a major power right they're a global power let them do what they're gonna do syria has historically been part of their their routine ukraine has been part of their routine they didn't necessarily invade these are separatists mm-hmm. in donbass who are ukrainians who are being oppressed by the state all Right, all that kind of stuff just totally folded like a house of cards the second that russia actually invaded and i mean the hilarious thing is that gray zone hosted Pulyansky, I think his name is Dmitry Polyansky, the deputy ambassador of Russia to the United Nations, in order to have him say, no, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. This is all nonsense. How could mm-hmm. you say that? This is just CIA propaganda. And then literally like a week and a half later, Russia invades and um, and everybody is like, uh, uh it's a special military operation, and then like a month or two later, it's like, oh no, 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 Bucha didn't happen, Bucha didn't happen, you know. And so they just go down the line denying everything. When you can see, you can see all of these images, you can see the videos, you can see the drone footage of, of yeah. whole cities completely leveled, just like happened in Aleppo. And there's no denying it. So this whole thing has basically Expose what was already there, and sadly, it couldn't be exposed earlier in order to prevent the greatest tragedy—maybe uh, the greatest tragedy of our time.
3: Yeah, they turned on a dime. They went from "It's not going to happen. This is CIA agitprop. You aren't seeing what's really going on here. They're they're lying to you." To "Well, Russia had to do it because NATO was threatening them. Like there was no self-reflection, no like." Maybe we got this completely wrong before this started. No, they just oh, yeah. flipped. Like they got the new talking points, the old talking points out the window. These are the new talking points. Get on it.
1: I go back and forth as well, where it's like, are they the ones feeding the talking points to Russian media? <laughs> you saw like, especially during Syria, which arguably, I'm mean, maybe not even arguably, is worse calamity than what's happening right now in Ukraine because- the west didn't flip to support the revolution earlier and with more dedication but yeah you saw like sister agnes i think her name is this kind of like uh this this nun who uh who comes out in us panels and conferences and media and stuff like that and and uh, talks about how Assad is is fighting for uh, human rights and stuff like that. And then you have also like the veteran intelligence professionals for sanity uh, yes. <laughs> uh, releasing these press releases that are then, you know, basically read out to the media by Lavrov himself, right? right. So it's, it, it becomes a question of like, are they getting this from Russia or are they are they entrepreneurs in disinformation? They know who they support. Right. They're not necessarily handed the line, but they're expected to make something up on the fly. And if what they make up is you know, decent enough, then Russia will run with it and they get more uh, credibility within those uh, circles. So I don't know how it works, but it seems to me like uh, there's some degree of volunteerism. Right. And then on another level, there's a, a, a lot more financial support.
3: Well, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, a group called black hammer that was exposed for uh-huh. essentially taking Russian money from the intelligence services to do what they were doing. And that was a fascinating story. We covered that a little bit with, um, a gentleman by the name of, uh, Sasha on who had his hands in several pies, including the Cal exit, the Texit, the separatist oh, movements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it turned out that like, These were very, very small movements that were being written checks. It almost seemed like because they wanted something for Russian TV, like this isn't going to fool anyone who lives here. No one's going to be able to look at that and think, oh, wow, really? There's a California secession movement. No, (laughs) it wasn't very credible. But then if you don't necessarily live here, if you don't know what the local politics look like, and you're looking at a five minute spot on national TV and some other place, well, that might actually be a thing. So, yeah, to what you said about this is a, a a purely kind of, we need to make sure this looks good on TV and that we've got a narrative, whether it's coming internally or whether it's people we have worked with before, whether it's people who know what they're supposed to say and are saying it, they, you know, they got to fill the content over there too, I guess.
1: Yeah. And again, it's all, it's uh, so much of it is obscure and taking place in the shadows. I only was kind of alerted to what's taking place based on actually finding myself kind of in their networks and just being like, (laughs) Oh my God, like this, this is happening all around us. And, and to an extent, like we all kind of were like, Uh you know, anybody who was at the, I don't know more stuff in the Midwest during 2014, 2015,
3: right? Right.
1: With the water issues and all of that kind of stuff. They were being, you know, rolled up into Russian propaganda through RT. And many people were like, how about RT? They're the only major media entity that's actually come out here and is reporting on what's taking place. And it was like, oh my God, like, of course they had a point. (laughs) Right, Uh of course, they had a point. Like, and that's part of the issue. Like, that was the other way that this has all been presented about what I've been saying and what people like you have been saying, and everybody's been saying. So you know what I'm talking about as as well as everybody else. They say, well, Russian media and this is like alternative media. They're all reporting on stuff that the mainstream media won't report on. They're filling a gap in the public that is a necessary, uh, thing to fill. And so when you're, you know, going up against them, you're just a fed, you're just like allied with the United States. Mm -hmm. You're a neocon,
3: right? Right.
1: I get called a neocon like all the damn time. (laughs) I like I oppose Iraq war from the very beginning. You know, I, I, I've been struggling against free trade agreements since literally since 2008, I mean, I know a lot of people have been around longer than I have, but like, I don't know.
3: No, I mean, I get it. You're not a neocon. There's, it's like, it's their favorite insult when somebody pushes back on their ties to this Russian state media. It's like, all of a sudden you're a neocon. It's like, no, I am not a neocon. You are. We're a McCarthyite. You are manipulating this situation.
2: But it's a way to make sure that their audience knows they can dismiss you out of hand because you you definitely fit into this box and this bubble, and it's often quite quite clearly divorced from reality. But they've created their own reality. Exactly,
1: exactly, and that's that's kind of a fundamental issue uh, of the the kind of concussive force of reality wars it's it's not like the Mm -hmm. the the whole idea of information war right of disinformation it's all about kind of disaggregating one's perspective and their orientation in the world and trying to restructure a complex of meaning and reference through which ideology can really kind of kick in. And that means essentially not just a framework of what you believe and where that makes sense, but a framework of how you come to those conclusions of how meaning is made. Right. And so this sort of psychological warfare, if you will, that was introduced after World War II, really, and which NATO did a lot of fishy and messed up stuff in regards to, is truly kind of a battlefield, you know, or it creates these battlefields that have a really damaging impact on society at large because there is no public square, right? No. This is a myth. The public square depends on a consensus reality. And there is no consensus reality. There are bomb threats. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like increasingly, Russia has collaborated with especially the Republican Party, um, but also areas of the left to totally dismantle consensus reality and hit people against one another in what they feel viscerally to be a struggle to the death, Mm -hmm. a struggle for survival. And those stakes, I don't know if anybody can win in those stakes. And the issue is, I think, with Ukraine – I mean, we talked about almost in a victorious note, like the fact that the game was up and everything is open now, everything is visible, but it still feels like a war of attrition. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that will really let up. But yeah, as you said before, Griffith, the next presidential election is going to be really brutal
3: and really important. Right. And it's... Looking ahead at if if 2020 was like this existential fight for the country, 2024 is shaping up to be an even bigger one, I think, to a large extent, because we have so many bad things that are going to happen on day one. Trump has been very upfront about the idea that the government's going to get dismantled as soon as he can pull it off, that federal employees are all going to get fired, that they're going to use the power of the state to go after the people that have been dissidents on this you mentioned seeing the same kind of thing happen in europe specifically hungary well we're going to get it here when oh yeah they get this
2: they're done pretending otherwise i don't know how much has actually changed it's just the the private dm rooms and chats are now they're just saying it out loud they're not they're not trying to hide it and uh it's it's just a question of well what are you going to do about it or you can't do anything about it and if we win this is what's coming.
1: Yep. I think that no election takes place in a static environment. No election is statistical. I mean, it comes down in a sense to statistics. If you have a very active imagination about what statistics means, right. which everybody should. I love statistics. I do it all the time. But what is really important to note is that elections are also about momentum
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and they're about people having enough sense of security enough sense of dignity and enough in a way bravado to actually get out there and do it you know what i mean okay and what that takes is organizing grassroots organizing right and we can't let these teachers just be exposed get out in the open and just kind of like one after the other get you know uh, plucked out of their work because they're too scared. Yeah. <laughs> School boards, all of these things. We need to protect people, mm-hmm. right? What is happening with these informal targeted terrorist attacks is fundamentally illegal. Mm-hmm. And protecting and defending people who are being threatened in this way isn't just the natural thing to do It is a public duty. So I think, you know, and I'm coming at it from perhaps a patronizing position of protection. Right. But I think a better angle here is real engagement. Right. Right. Uh, We need to engage in these school boards. We need to engage in PTAs. We need to,
3: you know, actually approach this. Like it's a struggle we can win. Because it is fundamentally it is. If we show up and actually start fighting, then I think that this is definitely a fight that we can win. Half the reason they win is because we don't show up. So, so how can people support the work you're doing? How can people support you and your work? Oh, geez. Um, I don't know, buy the book,
1: get involved in community organizing and, and show up for trans
3: folks. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. well, Thank you very much for coming on with us today. We appreciate you your time. We know this is kind of last minute, so thank you very much for making the time. We really appreciate the fact that you were willing to jump on and do this. Absolutely.
2: Thanks, man. Sorry we kept you so long, but uh, this was so good, and yeah, didn't want to stop (laughs) talking. We we couldn't stop asking (laughs) questions. So, take care.
3: Take care. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening and being a paid subscriber to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. We're incredibly grateful for your support. We would not be able to make this show without you. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at didnothingwrongpod at protonmail.com. Again, thank you so much. It means the world to us.